Hello, everybody. It is officially spring, and you are listening to episode 11 of the Tata Cancer Podcast. I'm going to be interviewing three incredible women who are the co-authors of a book called Hope Among Us. I read it. It's great. I think it'll be helpful for anybody on this journey, and it's just a unique story of friendship and um, survivorship and thrivership. So I can't wait to share this with you and just a little update on me. Gosh, I am doing well. The weather is warming up. I am reluctantly starting to wear (laughs) more shorts, which everybody laughs at me for this, but ever since I was a kid, I just could not wear shorts. I just feel so ridiculous in shorts. I don't know if anybody else feels that way. I've got these little Asian legs that look, I I feel like they look like a baby's legs, (laughs) even though I do a lot of Pelotoning. Um, You know, but I'm coming to terms with them. Coming to terms with a lot of things these days. But, you know, life is great. I'm so happy. I am working hard and enjoying everything that there is to offer. I recently graduated from a meditation teacher training that was incredible. So if you haven't already, check me out on Insight Timer under Junie Boucher. I'll put the link in the show notes, but I've been doing a lot of free stuff there, free um, events on Instagram, uh, Zoom, and also going to be starting to do free events on Insight Timer Live. So I would love it if you joined me. But anyway, without further ado, let's get into this episode, babies. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Tata Cancer Podcast, where we will discuss the physical and mental elements of healing from a breast cancer diagnosis. My name is Junie Boucher. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a breast cancer survivor. When you're diagnosed with breast cancer, you're forced to make life-changing decisions with so much information that's really hard to sift through. My intention is to help provide you with the information you need to make a decision that's going to align your body, mind, and heart so that you can live your best life going forward. I'm going to be your new breast friend. Okay, let's do this. The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Please always consult with your doctor for any of your medical needs. All right. So I am super happy today to uh, welcome Rhonda, Jennifer, and Mari, who are the authors of this book called Hope Among Us. I read it. It's wonderful. It's a great resource for any woman that's been diagnosed with breast cancer. And they have a very kind of unique situation uh, with their friendship and a family history. Uh, So welcome, ladies. Thank you. you. (laughs) If you'd like to just go ahead and introduce yourselves, um, if you could tell our listeners when you were diagnosed, how old you were, what type of breast cancer you had, um, that would be wonderful. Hi, my name is Rhonda Izaguri. I am um, almost five-year breast cancer survivor. I was diagnosed in March of 2017 with estrogen and progesterone positive invasive ductal carcinoma. Great. I'm Jennifer Dresser, and I was first diagnosed at age 37 in 2012 uh, with estrogen-positive uh, invasive ductal carcinoma, and then um, I experienced a recurrence seven years later in 2019. Hi there, my name is Mari. I was diagnosed um, in 2019 at the age of 42. I had just turned 42. Um, my cancer was invasive ductal carcinoma, and I was estrogen, progesterone positive, and HER2 negative. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and you two, you three have a very interesting story, um, which I'm assuming, you know, is covered in the book, but how did you, how did you three meet? Because you met before you were diagnosed, right? Right. Um, Mari and I actually met um, almost 10 years ago when our sons were in preschool. 
And Jennifer and I met about seven years ago when our daughters were in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we all have children that went to the same elementary school and became friends through our kids. Awesome. And then, and you all have a mother that was diagnosed with breast cancer. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. My mom is almost a 20 year breast cancer survivor. So she, um, and she and I had the same type of cancer. Um, but like I said, she was diagnosed 20 years before I was. So, mm-hmm. and with Jennifer and Rhonda, I think your mother's, was it a different type of breast cancer? Yes, mine was. So my mom um, was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. She was 71 years old. And um, yeah, it was a very different kind of cancer than mine. My mom uh, actually was the same estrogen positive, And she was diagnosed in between uh, my two diagnoses. Um, she was stage one, uh, very early detection. She was 78 at the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, but, but in terms of the genetic component, um, there, there was no BRCA, right? Or I know there was this, the gene of unknown. I have that as well. I'm not on the BRCA gene, but that, that, um, significance of unknown variant, which is always like, okay, yeah, that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> but, I actually got that diagnosis or that um, result just a day before my big surgery. So I was going to have a unilateral mastectomy. And the day before they called me and said, I do have a VUS on my BRCA2. And so I decided um, to do, opted for the double. And it took some back and forth the day before surgery, but they were able to fit me in. And I had a double mastectomy because of that. Yeah. And and what about, what about um, the other two ladies? Did you, again, I'm trying not to reveal too much about the book, (laughs) but um, I do like to cover, you know, different sort of options that women have and and sort of the different outcomes, because it's such an individual experience. Um, What, what type of surgeries did, did you have Mari and and Rhonda? I opted to have a, um, a lumpectomy and um, prior to surgery, um, I knew I had one positive lymph node, but they wanted more information before determining um, my full treatment plan. And um, so I, I pimped it hard. It was like a really tough decision, but um, I opted for the, for the lumpectomy. And um, my doctor explained to me that my risk of recurrence um, with lumpectomy and and radiation um, was about the same. So, um, but unfortunately, uh, when I got my final pathology results, I had 11 positive lymph nodes. And so Mm. um, that put me in stage three and, um, you know, five months of chemo, 30 rounds of radiation. Now I'm on hormone suppressive medication. So um, I'm definitely a high risk cancer survivor. Yeah. And did you have any type of reconstruction after the lumpectomy or do you, did it? So I lost half of my breast size with the lumpectomy and I had a breast cancer in my left breast. And about a year after, um, my first surgery, I had reconstruction done to my right breast and, mm-hmm. um, basically a reduction and a lift. So now I'm, um, equal. I just need to, you know, have some, a little bit more reconstruction on my left, but that will come down the line after COVID. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and what about, um, what about your, your surgery, Rhonda? Jennifer. Jennifer. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jennifer. No problem. Um, well, the first time I was diagnosed, being that I was 37, Um, I was struggling with either doing a lumpectomy radiation versus a mastectomy. Um, I took quite some time to do some research. And as I was looking into things, they were talking about reconstruction was harder after radiation. Um, And then taking into account um, my uh, score that I received um, on my tumor, I was in an intermediate group. And also, uh, being 37, I decided to go ahead and do a double mastectomy. Um, after I was had my decision confirmed to me afterwards with the pathology report, 
um, because there was DCIS spread throughout that entire left breast. And they told me that radiation would not have gotten it all. So in that, in that sense, I had made the right decision. Uh, consequently, seven years later, um, on that same incision area uh, where that scar was, I had another tumor growing and um, they had done a biopsy, told me it was just scar tissue. Um, and then a few years later, I started having pain down my arm. And that's when they discovered that um, it had reoccurred and was in my chest wall and in my um, lymph nodes and my axillary area. Um, so with that, I had to have um, uh, just all of those things removed. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. It's a lot of information. I know. Um, I had to have an axillary lymph lymph node dissection because of that. Um, And then of course, radiation and chemotherapy. So Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think it's a lot of women don't realize that even if you have the entire breast removed, like the tumor can come back. Um, And, you know, I, do you feel like your surgeon was sort of pressing one option or another? I did. Um, Originally, um, the first time she was pressing me to do uh, a lumpectomy and radiation. Um, And I even allude to it in the book. I was somewhat offended um, by her saying, there's no need to, to do a, a mastectomy. We don't need to be that radical. Let's, let's keep you beautiful and, and just do a lumpectomy and radiation. And that was offensive to me that we were putting, um, you know, the outward appearance and looks ahead of, you know, my, my life, basically. At this point, I had told her, I have four small children. I need to be here. And so I don't care how radical I need to be. I just need to ensure that I'm here for my kids. Yeah, absolutely. It it is interesting. I do feel like um, there is that lumpectomy is, is, was pressed for me as well with my surgeon, but you know, when you have a big portion of your breast removed, like there is definitely a cosmetic element to that. So, (laughs) I mean, for me, it was more that they did talk about like the anxiety. So, you know, I don't have children if I, but I, if I had four children, I I would completely understand where you're coming from. It's so, it's so hard um, in terms of, you know, like there were things that my surgeon and my medical team said that I felt like I was, I was offended by as well. So when you wrote about that in the book, I did relate to that. Um, but it's also kind of like, you know what, there, someone's going to be, someone's going to touch a soft spot, really. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so many soft spots with, with this journey and you're mm-hmm. in such a high pressure situation and you're making these really intensive decisions in such, even when you take a little bit of time, mm-hmm. you know, it, it never feels like enough time. Would you, would you ladies say that you relate to that? Yeah, definitely. I actually feel like I had a really different experience with my breast surgeon. Um, She didn't push one option or the other, but she brought in um, not just the physical component or or the risk of recurrence, but she also talked about the mental component. And um, if having a lumpectomy would cause more anxiety in the future because of, oh my gosh, I should have removed the entire breast. Um, but she also talked about the fact that cancer can come back even if you remove it. It doesn't present a zero risk, which I think a lot of women don't think about or know about. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. actually think it is a really, there, there's a mental component to it. Like, am I going to have more anxiety? Can I live? You know, it's a hard decision that you are making so fast. So she really encouraged me to think about that and to have that impact my decision. Um, so I actually felt like she she was really great. My plastic surgeon, on the other hand, did hit a soft spot and like offend me in many ways. But you know, <laughs> yeah, I feel like it, the plastic surgeon their their perspective is a little bit different. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. And very blunt. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And you know what? It's funny because I know you all were through Kaiser, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Um, and I was actually living up in the Bay Area at that time. Which Kaiser were you ladies? Were you all at the exact same Kaiser? Yes, yes. in Sacramento. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was in the East Bay. Um, but I had I had a really good experience with Kaiser. I think it was really nice having everybody in that same little family of practitioners and um it sounds like you all three had a pretty good experience in that way as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, yes, I would. Yeah. I think yeah. that, um, they moved quickly. Mm-hmm. They worked together. There was a team. Like I wasn't jumping through hoops to get a referral here, referral there. Um, I feel like there was support. It, it, it was, it was good. I know Kaiser, a lot of times they have a bad rap about certain things, but my experience so far has been, Good. But I also think that no matter how good it is, we have to advocate for ourselves. And Mm -hmm. um, that is so important. So however good their treatment might be, I am part of that team. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to advocate for yourself and ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. I actually have to credit Jennifer, because I got diagnosed between her two diagnoses. And so I called her before my surgery. And she was um, the person that mentioned to me about nipple sparing. I had never heard of a nipple sparing surgery before. Nobody at Kaiser had mentioned it. And um, basically, I'm because of her, I have to credit um, for giving me that information. And then I brought it back to my plastic surgeon. And he said, talk to um, the other doctor. He said, talk to them. And so basically, I was able to get a nipple sparing surgery because of what she had suggested to me. So I credit Jennifer to that. And I mean, honestly... It, it really helped because I, there's so many decisions on the table, but if you can talk to somebody that's been through it and that has, you know, lived that experience, it can really help. Absolutely. Yeah. I also, I also was lucky enough to have that surgery and just in case anybody listening doesn't know. So a nipple sparing surgery is basically when you're able to keep the, you know, your nipple, there's no feeling if you have a mastectomy, but, um, and there is that chance. I think this is probably the scariest thing about a nipple sparing is that, you know, some women will, you know, if that nipple can die, there is sort of a period, but, you know, I'm lucky enough that, that everything worked out fine. I, and I'm assuming with you ladies as well. Yes. Yeah, I wasn't able to save my nipple. My cancer was really close. So I had to have Mm -hmm. it removed. And did you end up doing like any kind of tattoo or reconstruction in that regard? I still need to do the tattoo. That's part of what I need to have done. Um, I think it will make me feel more balanced, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, the past couple of years have been crazy, but that's what I want to (laughs) do. The the 3D tattoos, nipple tattoos look so... um, great, you know, so I'm I'm looking forward to getting that done. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so speaking of the last couple of crazy years, I do think it's really kind of extraordinary and and worth discussing about how, you know, COVID affected your all experience. And I would love if you each, each of you kind of just talked about that a little bit, if if you'd like. Yeah, I was diagnosed, um, in late 2019 and COVID hit about March. So I was actually um, going through chemo at the time that COVID started. And it, it was traumatic, actually. I, 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 I did, I called it COVID square, uh, C squared. I had cancer in, <laughs> during COVID, the <laughs> pandemic. But, um, you know, when COVID initially, when the pandemic first started, there were so many unknowns. So, mm-hmm. um, I lost, you know, support at my chemo treatments. Um, nobody could go with me. In fact, I had to go through like three different security guards even to get to oncology. Um, wow. And then even the medical team, they were totally masked and wearing shields. And you really lost, like they couldn't touch you anymore other than to, you know, put your the needle in the port. And um, it became very, very scary um, because were they going to stop chemo treatments? Like there was just so many unknowns, but think the hugest component was just, um, you know, being high risk, afraid Mm -hmm. of getting COVID and losing like the human support that is so important to get through treatments. Um, But I did make it through treatment. And then I had my 30 rounds of radiation also during COVID, which again, I had to do all by myself. Um, And, uh, and I had one surgery during COVID too, which is drop getting dropped off. And 
Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, even though the medical, our medical support teams were masked, they, I really do think stepped up and tried really hard to compensate for um, the lack of support. But, you know, even mm -hmm. during chemo, my blood pressure was through the roof when I would get there because I was so stressed. So sometimes mm -hmm. it would delay my chemo treatment by three to four hours and they would have to give me Ativan. And so um, I think that for me, COVID in some ways um, has impacted my healing and, and being able to move forward. It cut me yeah. off of a lot of support groups and friends. Um, and I had to do a lot on my own. And I think it was very, very hard. And I think I'm just mm. maybe now starting to sort of work through things, even though we're still in a pandemic. But mm. ultimately, I did reach out to Rhonda and Jennifer, and I was able to find support in other groups, even like with fitness. And we did try and fitness here in Sacramento. And there were some things that I was able to do. But the most healing part, a lot of the healing was through writing the book. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, when I was reading that portion of the book, my heart was just going out to you. Like the way you, the way you discuss it in the book is, is very, um, you know, I just can't even imagine having to go to a surgery and literally like leaving your partner, your husband in the parking lot and going in by yourself and, and, you know, all the questions that they ask you over and over and over again, just to make sure they're doing the right surgery. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, that that's, we'll save that for uh, readers to, to discover in the book, but you did a really good job of just kind of conveying those feelings. And I, I commend your bravery um, on that, but okay. yeah. Yeah. Could, could you other ladies like let's how, how was your experience? Uh, well, fortunately, I had finished uh, my major surgery and chemo and radiation prior to COVID, but I did have my reconstruction surgery left. Um, so that was affected by COVID. Um, basically, it just delayed it. Um, and then, of course, I had my husband just had to drop me off at the curb and say goodbye. And I went in and did the surgery on my own. And um, so yeah, it was, it was difficult, but I think because I had had so many surgeries prior to that, that mm -hmm. it wasn't as traumatic for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I was done with active treatment, but I was visiting both of these friends here and it really, um, gave me a sense of giving back, even though we had to meet mm -hmm. in Marty's um, front of her house to be safe for COVID. But I think it really was therapeutic for me to help them. And then I realized um, all of us, instead of just helping each other, we can maybe help people outside of, you know, our circle. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, you, all three of you seem to have very loving families. Um, and one thing I like to highlight you know, in these discussions is just like the importance of that role of caretaker and the, and the difficulty that they experience because they're trying to be strong for us and deal with their own emotions and, and witnessing our struggle. And if you were to give advice to any woman uh, going through this or, you know, trying to support a caretaker, what would, what would a, what would you say would be a good way to support them? To support the caretaker. Yeah, but like was <laughs> I I I I think family is a can a disease that affects the entire family. So I think yeah. that um a lot of times the patient or the person that has cancer is getting a lot of support from others. And I think oftentimes the caretaker is is forgotten in some ways. But yeah. what I think the best thing, I think the caretaker needs a support system. And mm -hmm. um they need people to talk to that. Um, have been like, I, I was in a, I'm in a unique situation in that my husband had cancer 10 years ago and I was mm -hmm. his caretaker. So in some ways, like he, he really just got it. And I think part of it was that he had gone through it. Um, and for me, I, I, because I knew how hard it was to be the caretaker, I think I tried to protect and shield him, but mm -hmm. I, I did encourage him to, um, you know, make sure that he had, you know, meaningful conversations with, with 
people outside of our home. And he really jumped into the role and and doing most things for our kids. And um, and I haven't talked about this a lot, but my husband did rely on his faith quite a bit. Um, and he did prayer groups with his family almost nightly during mm-hmm. COVID while I was going through all of um through my journey, which I'm still on. But um, I think just, you know, I don't think that you, as a caretaker, you have to do it all. And I think it is okay to, um, to share emotion. But I also think that the caretaker needs their own support system. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say, um, I mean, my husband was already very involved with the kids before I had cancer. But of course, once I was in treatment, everything was on his plate. And so what I tried to do was get my kids involved in some activities that would help them. And so, for example, um, I enrolled them in Camp Kesem. And so they went for a week. And that actually happened to be the first time is when I was going through, I believe I was going through my chemo at the time. So it gave Mm -hmm. my husband at least one less thing that he has to worry about when the kids are at camp. And then the kids got an amazing experience being around other kids that were going through this and getting a lot of coping skills. And then I also um, put my kids in an art therapy camp or art therapy classes. And so they would Mm. go once a week and talk um, again with a trained therapist and see other kids going through the same kinds of things. So it wasn't, it gave, um, you know, basically a venue for the children to talk and kind of connect with other kids going through a similar situation. Um, Yeah. That's amazing. Camp Kesem, just for people who don't know, is it's a national program, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's yeah. for children who have a parent that's going mm-hmm. through cancer and it's like a sleepaway camp and they get to be with other kids. They get to talk about their experience. Um, it's almost like their support group yet right. combined with, with all these fun camp activities. And the kids can keep going until they're 18 and then they can even become counselors when they're in college. So it's kind of that. I think you mentioned that, that like all the counselors, aren't they usually kids that or alumni? Um, Or at least they have some connection. Yeah. So oftentimes it's kind of that they keep going and going and, you know, like my kids started, my daughter was in kindergarten. No, sorry. She was in I'll say, was it second? I don't know, but she's basically five years. They've gone for five years and they're saying they're going to go until they finish high school and they might even continue past that. So see, that's so amazing. Like I, I I had heard about that. I think a lot of people in the Bay area know about it and it's, I didn't realize it was something that like, if the parent's not in active treatment that they can still go, which I think is important. You know, I think that's, that's so awesome. And uh, I do love that in the book, you interview, you know, your children and the, you know, some of your partners and get their perspective and your mothers. I think that's really cool. Just having their perspective, um, because, you know, we don't, that's not something that's always highlighted. Just like we, we just discussed like the, the caretakers and it is, it's a, it's a, it's something that you go through as a, as a family, but, Mm -hmm. um, Jennifer, did you want to, could you talk about, you know, how your your experience with that? Uh, well, my husband was great as far as uh, helping and with the kids. You know, like I said, we had four small kids at the time. Um, so bless his heart, he was still working full time. But I think one of the big keys and something that I would um, advise people is if you have a church community to really reach out to them and Mm -hmm. to rely on them. That was huge for us both times, both Mm -hmm. experiences. Um, You know, they were bringing in meals, they were coming in and cleaning the house, they were babysitting the kids. Um, I mean, just a a myriad of different things were done that we are eternally grateful for that really Mm -hmm. helped my husband and to take a load off of him. Mm -hmm. And um, so that that would be something I would really advise people if they have a, a church community to, to not be afraid to reach out to them. Yeah, absolutely. That social support I think is so key. And, you know, if you are a person of faith, yeah, like leaning on your faith, you know, that, that is something that, that I do feel you touch on in the book. And I think, you know, everybody kind of finds their strength in different places, but if you are a person of faith, like, I mean, it's, it's a very, easy place to go to. And, and it's, mm-hmm. I think it's, um, have you all ever read radical remission? 
well, well, it's it's a book written by a doctor, and um, at the cancer support center I used to go to, it was always checked out. I never was able to to read it, but then after you know after things kind of calmed down, I read it. And one of the things that she does talk about is, you know, just cultivating your spiritual connection, whatever that looks like and how important that can be to the healing process. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that, that that's such a great, a great point. Um, so let's talk about, about the book a little bit. How did this all come about? Sure. Um, so basically I was beginning to visit Mari during some of her treatments to give her support. And then also Jennifer, as she was going through, um, the surgery and reconstruction part of it. And um, they had both known each other a little bit at school, but I realized their journeys were pretty similar and mine as well. So instead of um, meeting with them individually, we started to meet together to offer each other support. And then it kind of just evolved naturally where we realized we don't wanna just help each other, but maybe help the, the broader community. Yeah, and do you have a writing background, any of you, or was it just? <laughs> No, I for a job. Uh, Mari and I both do a lot of writing as part of our professions. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a school psychologist, so I write reports pretty much all the time. And I was a legislative attorney, so I wrote laws, which is nothing <laughs> like writing a book, but at least I was writing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and and was an author, so I kind of was inspired by her because she, I remember uh-huh. when I was in elementary school, she would be writing her books and whatnot. So it's kind of a dream that I had for a while. Awesome. Yeah. And then, I mean, did you guys, so, so when you, so you decide to write a book and then did you just start, like, did you just start saying, okay, we're going to start talking about this and then come together? Would you read it to each other or or how did that really kind of like formulate? It's a good question. I think we tried to do it (laughs) in sections. So we would, what we do is um, divided up our story as the book is in kind of different parts of our lives. And we realized, um, we didn't actually write the first chapter first. We actually mm-hmm. started with more about the active treatment because that's where we were mentally. Even mm-hmm. though I had finished treatment, that was still kind of on my mind. And that was really the place where they were at. And then, mm-hmm. so um, we did that. And then I think <clears throat> after, after um, excuse me, diagnosis, then we kind of did the active treatment part. And then we went back and started to flesh out our stories of who we were before we had cancer because, you know, that we're different in some ways, similar in some ways, but I think that first part of the book, you really get to know who we are as people. And we did come together maybe monthly in the beginning. And because it was, we, we wrote it, it was somewhat of a COVID project. Mm-hmm. We would meet out in my front patio and uh-huh. we would come with our laptops and we would write in Google Docs and we would talk and share. And in a way it was a support group. We would be talking mm-hmm. about the book, but then would trigger some sort of, oh, this is happening. You know, so mm-hmm. we would write and then talk and then we would edit each other in Google Docs and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And I think Rhonda laid out the chapters and that just is kind of how it got started. Yeah. The way that it, the book is laid out, it's very easy to follow. I feel like it's, um, even though it's three different stories that are all intertwined, I just like the way that it's organized. And I think it would be really helpful for anyone going through this experience or even anybody who's, you know, a, a caretaker or a loved one, um, mm-hmm. just to kind of see, you know, this is the process. This is, these are the struggles. Um, and you know, th- these are the pain points and, uh, and then also just what the perspective was of the, of the, the spouses and the children. And, um, you know, do you feel like in terms of your healing since, um, so Mari, you said that you're kind of still on the journey. What, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? I know you said you're on the hormone blockers, I think we're all, I think we're all on hormone blockers. (laughs) You know, I really, for me, it's, I I think that um, you're diagnosed with cancer, but it is, it's a lifelong journey. And I actually think that um, once treatment ends, survivorship is, is even harder. And I think um, support is even more important then. So I am, it's a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. And, um, I will, you know, I still have, you know, I go in monthly to get a Lupron shot in the oncology center and I see all the people there getting their chemo and I still am pretty active in communication with my oncologist and I'm still getting full body scans and it's mm-hmm. just, 
like I said, it's a lifelong journey and I'm still figuring out how to survive survivorship. And it's, it's hard and, um, I'm, I'm working through it, but, um, I think what's, you know, once you're, you're diagnosed with cancer, I think it's so important to have support, to be able to live the rest of your journey and and support is super important. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, you know, that's kind of been my purpose because yeah, you're in this active treatment and you've got so many doctors and so much going on and, and, you know, your community, if, if you're you know leaning on your community and then you are finished with your active treatment and then it's like, oh, life's just supposed to go on, but there's so much that you have to be conscious of. And they're, you know, like, I can only imagine going in for these loop run shots and seeing these people getting the, it's, it's, it's like a PTSD that you experience because it's bringing, I mean, going into I think almost any breast cancer survivor, when they go in for any kind of scan, I mean, getting into that machine, it's like my whole body <laughs> just fills with anxiety. And, and I, I think we can all, all relate to that. Um, I actually, when I went for in for my PET scan post-treatment, I vomited all over the tech. I was, oh. I felt terrible, but I was so stressed. And again, yeah. I had to go alone and I, it was awful, you know, yeah. and I have physical like reactions to it. I since yeah. I've not done that since, thank goodness, because I figured out in some ways how to cope a little bit better, but it was terrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's really, it's really, really scary. And yeah, the the physical <laughs> reaction is yeah, that I, I totally get that. Um, and w- so I know um, you know, there some of you have, have gone through some kind of have any, have you made health changes since your diagnosis? I would love for you to talk about that just a little bit, mm-hmm. each of you, if you could, do you want to start Mari? I'll start. Okay. Yeah. I think for me, um, perhaps one of the biggest health changes I made was changing my job. Um, mm. I wanted to, um, reduce the stress in my life. Not that, you know, changing jobs solved the problem, but um, the job that I had before cancer, um, long hours, very high stress, not the best environment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I got a new job and that new job, um, my stress level is nothing compared to what it used to be, but, um, I work from home and even after COVID, we will have to go back into the office two days a week, but that, um, the extra time that I have allows me to, I see a personal trainer three times a week now, um, Mm -hmm. to exercise, um, which is also really important. And, um, I walk daily and I made a lot of, of diet changes as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the main things I did, um, I do intermittent fasting. So, Mm -hmm. um, I go for about 14 hours without eating and, Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm a work in progress. There's a lot of things that I still need to do, but, um, you know, with respect to some more diet changes, but I'm still mm-hmm. trying to live my life and enjoy my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I'm working at it. So, but for me, the biggest thing was definitely, um, lowering the stress in my life and being mm-hmm. able to carve out more time to take care of me. That's amazing. Honestly, that changing the job piece is I mean, that's where a lot of us spend the majority of our time. And mm-hmm. if you're stressed out there, I think, you know, that's a, a really huge shift. Um, so I commend you on that. I'm also a big fan of the intermittent fasting and, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's research that shows that like mm-hmm. the 13 hour fast can really help with recurrence. And I mean, 13 to 14 hours, like, do you even notice it? Like, I, I doesn't feel to me, it doesn't feel like anything. <laughs> I really, I think it's, it's been really great for me. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't have a problem doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. My first meal's at one o'clock and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, and it makes me feel like I'm actively doing something to mm-hmm. help reduce recurrence. Um, even though I know, you know, but, um, but yeah, I really like the intermittent fasting and I know mm-hmm. Jennifer said she's also doing mm-hmm. the intermittent fasting. So mm-hmm. you want to, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's one thing that I'm doing. Um, as you mentioned, um, I was told it's 30% that it can decrease. Yeah. Your it's, it's a that's, really that's big huge. number. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so to me, it's very simple to, 
and I had to change my way of thinking because I was always, oh, I need to eat breakfast and eat every couple hours. And so I've really had to change my thinking, mm -hmm. uh, whereas I usually won't eat until noon or one for the day. But um, the one of the big things that I did um, as well, and just going back a little bit, I really struggled with my diagnosis initially wondering what did I do wrong? Because mm -hmm. I have been very health conscientious my whole life. I've mm -hmm. lived a very strict health code, no alcohol, no smoking, no drugs. Mm -hmm. I've eaten healthy and exercised my whole life. And so it was really hard for me with that initial diagnosis of how did I even get this? And, yeah. um, and so I wasn't satisfied with the answers I was getting from my oncologist. You know, mm -hmm. he was like, and stuff happens. And I just felt like, no, there's, there's something, whether it's environment or, mm -hmm. you know, um, so I actually went to a natural oncologist, paid out of pocket to, to see him and he examined my files and whatnot. And he actually um, told me that my tumor looked very suspicious in the area that it was located being mm -hmm. almost up in my armpit. Mm -hmm. And so he, um, told me about the Nick theory and mm -hmm. that has to do with shaving our armpits and mm -hmm. that creates microscopic nicks. And then we're lathering on deodorant and antiperspirants. Mm -hmm. I was a huge antiperspirant user because I've been athletic my whole life and, you know, had a sweating problem. And so I would lather on the antiperspirant. Well, after doing research into that and the parabens, and how they wreak havoc on our endocrine system. Um, mm -hmm. I switched over to natural deodorants. Mm -hmm. And um, I also then took it a step further with parabens in all of my products. And I noticed as mm -hmm. I was going through all my makeups and my lotions that they all had parabens in them. Yeah. And so, of course, I have switched over to um, more natural products that, mm -hmm. that don't contain those things. So... Um, those would be the big suggestions I would tell anybody to make in their life. Those are easy yes. things to, to switch, you know, fix. So absolutely. I am a huge advocate for that. And yeah, I, I, I think a lot of women have that location. Mm -hmm. Um, I also use a naturopathic oncologist in, in addition to my regular oncologist. And is there, um, I know a lot of women are resistant to going to a natural deodorant because they're like, Oh, well, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I, is there a product that you use that you really love? Yeah, I, I will say this initially, mm -hmm. um, it seemed like my sweating was worse and mm -hmm. the body odor. And I thought, Oh, how am I going to do this? But I think over time, mm -hmm. um, my body has now regulated. I mm -hmm. think I was actually exacerbating the problem with the antiperspirant, clogging mm -hmm. up those, you know, cause that's what the aluminums and the parabens do. They clog up yeah. those, uh, sweat pores. And so I think your body then is in hyper mode creating more. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think if you can get through that initial period, uh, mm -hmm. where your body's kind of detoxing and trying to get regulated. Mm -hmm. Um, but I have found a couple more products. Um, I really like the native, um, deodorants, mm -hmm. uh, the coconut one. And then there's also one that I just found not too long ago that target actually even carries called, um, human and it comes mm -hmm. in the cardboard stick. Um, mm -hmm. and it's all natural. And I, those I've had good results with. Yeah. I yeah. That, native as well. And I really like it too. Yeah. yeah. Native is good. And it's almost like a good middle ground because it's mm -hmm. like, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I've, I've used sort of the extreme, like you couldn't eat it literally, like there's nothing yeah. in there. That, and then I, um, I also love primally pure is a really good brand, but I, I use native like shampoo and yeah. And I get that at target. It's all, yeah. it's all easy. You don't have to order it in a special Please, I but, like all the native products and yeah. I also switch to paraben free. Mm -hmm. And I, even with my makeup, like CoverGirl has a paraben free line now. Oh, they and do. Oh, that's awesome. They do. Um, and there's some that are really affordable and, um, I use dime cosmetics for a lot of my, and it's all paraben free, vegan, like, 
Um, and I, I use all of their um, facial cleansers, toners, and creams. And so I've, I've done a lot of research on that too. And there's some really great affordable products out there now that are paraben-free. Everybody's kind of jumping on that boat. Yeah, it seems like people are finally getting getting hip to that, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. Well, I think there's pressure because consumers are becoming more aware. So I think the manufacturers are, and companies are facing pressure to get rid of it. Good. But I think with the parabens and those things, it's it's something we can control, yes. right? Completely control. Yes. And, and whatever the research supports, at least I feel like I'm ditching all my things that could be potentially causing harm. And it's mm. something that at least I feel like I'm moving in the, in the right direction. And it felt like mm. liberating to just dump out all my old stuff. And I mm. love doing the research on new products, even my perfume. I'm like, I won't, I, I find paraben free yeah. perfume now. And my husband, like recently he bought me one of my perfumes that I used to love um, before I had cancer. And I had to tell him, I think it smells great, but I, I won't wear this anymore. And he yeah. wasn't even like aware of the changes I had made. What, what, you know, I've been exploring, that is one thing I do miss is perfumes. And I've been exploring some like clean perfume lines. Like recently I've been looking at, I don't know if you all have heard of Henry Rose, but, um, it's, it's totally clean and it, Michelle Pfeiffer made it. And her whole thing is like about having these products, but I don't know. I am still not really loving it. Is there a perfume that you love? It's in the dime um, all uh-huh. of the dime perfumes are uh-huh. clean, paraben free. And uh-huh. I think gosh, all of that, you can buy a little sample to try their uh-huh. different scents, but, um, dreams, something with dreams in it is my mm-hmm. favorite and it smells mm-hmm. really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I get compliments on it when I'm wearing it. Um, mm-hmm. and it, and I stopped wearing perfume until I found this one that I really like. So mm-hmm. I highly recommend their products and uh-huh. especially the perfume. That's the first thing that I tried was the perfume. And is dime, is that like an online thing or yeah, it's oh. online? Um, mm-hmm. it's, I don't think you can buy it in stores and mm-hmm. it's spelled the way, like, just like dime. The, Dime, D-I-M-E. <laughs> and I think you can look for Dime Cosmetics or I don't know, forget exactly. But yeah, um, a lot of fashion bloggers blog about Dime. And I think that's oh. kind of how I got, um, I, I saw it. And then I started doing my own research. And I just, like I said, at that point, I was looking for a clean perfume. Mm-hmm. And then I loved the perfume. Then I started using some of their other products, which I've mm-hmm. been really happy with. But the perfume is the best. Yeah. Okay. I will check that out. And Rhonda, you made some pretty, pretty big changes. Well, you know, we won't, you kind of discuss them in the book. Have you been able to keep up with them? Are there things that you? Yeah, I'd say some of them I have just so the Mm -hmm. um, listeners know I was in a clinical trial at Kaiser and they had kind of a three pronged approach. So doing healthier eating, whole foods, plant-based also logging exercise. um, And then also logging kind of stress management. Um, yoga, meditation, et cetera. So I had to really, for six months, log every food I ate, everything I drank, and every positive, um, healthy activity I did. So I think um, I have not been logging as strictly as now that the you know trial is over, but mm-hmm. I do think that um, I am still exercising probably a lot more than I was prior to the trial. Mm-hmm. And um, it helps that I live half a block from a park. So I try and do pickleball or, you know, ping pong or tennis or something fairly regularly. And then um, in terms of the whole food plant-based, I have not been as strict with that. I definitely still avoid um, a lot of meat, but I'm okay, you know, having some dairy and things like that. So it's not quite as extreme as the Kaiser clinical trial, but I think if we're just moving our bodies in the right direction, you know what I mean? We don't have to be completely um, on the other extreme, but I'm just kind of being a little more mindful with my choices and, and what I eat. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a lot of differing opinions in terms of the, the vegetarian piece. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not vegetarian. I I think my body thrives with a little bit more protein, but I kind of try to emphasize, you know, like salmon and, and chicken as opposed to red meat or I only buy organic, Mm -hmm. but, um, cause yeah, it's, it's amazing to me as a, you know, someone in nutrition to see how much like literally from like two different extremes, some places that, you know, like the vegan diet isn't going to work. And some, some schools of thought say that obviously not to have any meat, but I think, I think the, one of the common grounds is, is just, you know, incorporating a lot of colorful vegetables into your diet is really important. And just having a nutrient dense, 
anti-inflammatory balanced diet that has, that is high in fiber. Um, Mm -hmm. that's such a big thing because, you know, just like what Jennifer was saying about the, um, the deodorant, like sweating is one of our body's natural detox processes. So, you know, if, even if you're living a healthy life, if you're having this backup, your body's unable to, um, you know, flush out, uh, the, the toxins or even just, you know, the, the estrogens that you're being exposed to internally and externally, like that can cause problems. Um, and I think it's interesting too, how you three ladies live in the Bay area. I'm from the Bay area. There, there is a a really, it's, it's somewhat alarming (laughs) the breast cancer rate up in the, the Bay area. Um, like I think Marin County is one of the highest, um, breast cancer, like epicenters of the entire world. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I think that that has a lot to do, or my theory, I guess, would just be the environmental influences because Mm -hmm. a lot of people think breast cancer is a genetic thing. And and that's not really two. I think the statistic I believe is two out of three cases are something like 8%. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about when you really start looking at the products that you're using, whether they're beauty products or cleaning products, and you see how many of these hormone disrupting agents are in there, that it's, it's, I'm just so happy that we are seeing this movement and that you can go to target. And there's literally like a whole section of clean beauty, like that. Yeah. I really commend target on that because you don't, (laughs) you don't, you don't see that at other big chains. Um, but it is something that does seem to be up and coming and it's so important, um, I believe, but as we kind of, you know, wrap up a little bit here, is there anything, um, you know, we'll talk about, we'll, we'll close and talk about where you can find the book, but is there, are there any sort of last words that, that you'd like to, to give to any woman or family listening to this? I just think it's, it's sort of, um, in the title of our book, Cope Among Us, you know, I think that, um, getting a a cancer diagnosis can be very traumatizing and and disrupting. Um, and I think during our journey, there are times where we will can lose hope and get frustrated and focus on the why and not the what, but I think there are so many times when we don't have help, there is hope among us and our friends have hope and our family has help. And um, I just think that it is important to, to have that hope and to um, get receive help from others. And, um, you know, there are so many resources in the book, mm-hmm. um, even if you lack a support system mm-hmm. to try to reach out and have resources. And um, I just think it's, it's really important. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a whole there. Are there two sections? Like they're, they're like, uh, was it during treatment? And then there are actually sections of the book that actually list some of the resources that these ladies use and recommend. Um, so I think that's a really invaluable, um, piece of, of information. And I think support after finishing active treatment is just as important, if not more important as the support during treatment. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's, it's a lifelong journey. And, um, the more support we have, it's not something that we should do alone. These hard things yeah. are not meant to be done alone. So I just think it's really important to, um, to move forward with support. And I think this book has been great because it brings us together. We talk to people like you, we're always learning new things. Um, so the book really has helped our journey and, and our healing. And we really, I think all three of us work hard to help others in our community mm. when they're diagnosed. And um, it's really healing to give back. That's another part of, of um, cancer and, and like re- uh, recurrence prevention. Um, you know, as I've been delving into the emotional aspects of it, living a life of purpose that mm-hmm. comes up. And, mm-hmm. and I really see you ladies capitalizing on that with, with this book and giving back to your community. Um, so yeah, Rhonda, what do you, what do you, what are your last words or well, not la- last words? In- so well, but yeah, <laughs> she did. I would say, um, yeah, definitely. When you're getting the diagnosis, it feels like your world just stops and, um, try and see it is going to be hard, but there is kind of, if you look at that light at the end of the tunnel, like things get better over time. And I think the more that 
you um, get resources in terms of talk to other people that have been survivors. Like it's always the hardest when you're first getting diagnosed, but there's a lot of people in our community that um, are breast cancer survivors. And I think to talk to them and get help from people that have been through it. So yeah. 100%. For me, I would, I would just say um, something that my oncologist had told me my very first one, don't wait for your cancer to come back. Don't, don't be a prisoner to your cancer. And um, I actually, in the book, um, write about Stuart Scott, who I don't know if you know who he was, but um, at the ESPY Awards in 2015, as he was dying of cancer, he gave one of the most inspiring speeches that I would recommend to anybody to listen to. But he states in it that when you die, it does not mean that you lose to cancer. You beat cancer by how you live, why you live and in the manner in which you live. And I think if all of us take that to heart of, you know, making each day the best that we can and living our best life each day, regardless of the circumstances going on around us, then we're going to be a lot happier. I I actually highlighted that. And I just got chills hearing you say that again. I, I, that really impacted me too, of like, because it is easy and there is, you know, this, breast cancer personality that is a little bit of an overthinker and Mm -hmm. somebody who is like type type a and trying to control everything. And, and cancer is, is such a test in control or lack thereof. And so, you know, as you're on this journey of survivorship, you know, you, you want to be in control of that as well, which you're not because, Um, you know, just like in your experience, Jennifer, you, you were doing everything right quote unquote, and yeah. it still happened. Right. So, you know, it's, we, we, we don't get to dictate our future. We can do our best and, but not, I love, yeah, not being a prisoner to your cancer. I think that's so important because at the end of the day, you know, that stress, if, if you're stressed out all the time, even if you're eating the most perfect diet and doing all the things, if you're stressed out and in fear, that can also feed a recurrence. So, um, you know, I, I, I love that what you're putting out there. I think that's great. So where can, I will include all this in the show notes, but where can people find this book? So the book is available on Amazon. It's in a hardcover. It's in paperback. It's also on ebook. And then if they want more information, we have a website that has some of our videos on there, some other free resources. We're at www.hopeamongusbook.com. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday. This is going to air on a Wednesday, but um, we're recording on a Saturday. And I just appreciate you, you all for doing this, for giving back to this community, for sharing your very unique and interesting stories. And, um, and I'm just wishing you guys all the best. Thank Thank you. Best wishes to you. Thanks for having us. So there you have it, people. That is a wrap on episode 11. Thanks again to the wonderful authors of Hope Among Us. Get the book. It's great. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, One thing just to note too, it is Wednesday today. Starting on Friday is the Young Survivors Coalition Virtual Summit. And if you don't know the Young Survivors Coalition, they're a fantastic organization that supports young breast cancer patients. And they're doing this great um, online summit this year that covers a bunch of topics that I think anyone affected by breast cancer will get a lot out of. There's going to be some fun activities. I will be in attendance virtually and I cannot wait. You can go to their website. I'll put the link in there. It starts this Friday, so you don't have much time, but registration is free. And I think that's fantastic that they're offering that. Otherwise, per usual, please share subscribe, leave a positive review, help people learn about this podcast. Uh, I just want to reach as many people as possible who need this information. Feel free to attend some of my free meditation events that are coming up soon. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Junie B. Well or facebook.com forward slash Junie B. Well. Work with me. 
I can help you. <laughs> you know, survivorship is a tricky and I do one-on-one coaching. I would be honored to walk this path with you. Go to my website, www.juniebewell.com or just send me an email, junie at juniebewell.com so we can set up a free phone call and see if that would work for you. I hope you have a fantastic week ahead. Enjoy the sun if it's getting sunny where you are and I will be talking with you soon. I'm wishing you well. Bye-bye now.